Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people who are committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Madeline, and this week, Kanisha and I spoke with Ivalice Porora Garcia, a Democrat who serves as Senior Vice President at Crossroads Strategies, helping companies and organizations navigate the federal government in Washington, D.C., and Nick Adams, a Republican who is on the state, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Although affiliated with two ideologically different political parties that experience strong tensions, Ivelisse and Nick talked openly and compellingly about how it is possible to find the common ground and to address issues in a bipartisanship fashion amidst the difficulties of doing so. Ivelisse and Nick reinforced the image that seeking friendship with people who are different from ourselves is extremely important in a world where people have very different values and beliefs. Republicans and Democrats do not have to be enemies. Ultimately, we are all Americans who want what is best for our country's well-being. We should continue to approach issues as a team effort because everyone's opinions and ideas are valid. If we see injustices, we should address them through shaping policy. Taking in different perspectives will lead to collective efforts that are more likely to have a long-lasting impact on the future of our nation. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. Um, My name is Madeline, and I'm a high school senior from Brooklyn, New York. Um, And and I've been on the podcast for quite a while now. I think this is my third year. Um, And I'm really excited to talk today uh, because it's very rare that we're able to reach across the aisle and get Republican or conservative leaning um, guests to speak with us. Um, It's just something that we struggle with in New York City for some reason. And it's always been a big passion of mine to reach across the aisle, me myself having somewhat conservative viewpoints as well as liberal viewpoints. Um, So it's always something that I'm looking forward to having um, a discussion that's as bipartisan as the one that we're having today. Um, So I'm very excited to be Um, here. Hi, everyone. My name is Kanisha. I'm a high school senior from Queens, New York. And in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also a facilitator at YVote. And today I'm really, really excited to get the opportunity to discuss what policy development looks like on the federal level. Um, I think that's something we don't get to a lot on this podcast, really like the nitty gritty of what creating policy and what creating legislation looks like. I feel like there's so much more that goes into it than meets the eye, whether it be getting inputs from like consultants and experts to drafting bills to, um, I guess like from the lobbying side to negotiating them. I think that's just like such an interesting and complex process that is really hard to learn about for the most part. I can at least find like as a fairly like civically active young person, it's still hard to get a peek into that process. So I'm just so excited to hear about what you guys do, how you guys are involved in that side of things and learn more about your backgrounds when it comes to policy. My name is Ivelis Borroa. I'm a senior vice president at Crossroads Strategies. Uh, It's a consultant firm and we help different companies and organizations navigate the federal government here in Washington, DC. Um, that is pretty much the gist of what I've done. I got to this role after working on the Hill for around um, uh, seven years or so, and in politics, a total of eight years. 
And I started on the campaign side and then I transitioned to the House, uh, sorry, the Senate and then the House. Then I did uh, work with the Hispanic Caucus and then now I'm, I'm on the private sector. Hey, uh, thanks for having me on. I'm Nick Adams. Um, like Ivelisse, I, um, well, I still currently work on the Hill, but I, her and I worked on the Hill together for a while and both worked uh, in the House. Uh, my background, um, I, I got to the Hill after serving in the Army for about 10 years, uh, transitioned out of active duty at about the 10-year mark, uh, and realized I wanted to do something um, in policy, um, wanted to help craft foreign policy and and really get into um, how, how laws are made and, and really serve at that level. Uh, got my graduate uh, degree at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, and then started out on the House side working for Congressman Brad Wenstrup. Um, and then transitioned over to the Senate, um, worked for a couple of members there and currently work on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence on the minority staff uh, for Vice Chairman Rubio um, and also for Senator John Cornyn from Texas. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here to speak about what I do. Um, really want to emphasize some of the bipartisan work that I've done over the last five years um, and the bipartisan nature of some of the work we do now. Um, and obviously, um, working with Ivelisse um, on some things in the past is a great example of that. So really happy to get into that and, and anything else. Uh, thanks for having me on. Intros. I wanted to start out by asking a little bit more specifically about what you guys do and how your work intersects with policy. And before I came to the Hill, I, I, I wasn't quite sure what folks on the Hill did, to be totally honest. Um, you know, you, you um, un unless you um, have a background in that or, or really get into that, I think early on, um, there's a lot of mystery that surrounds Washington. And certainly now, um, you know, there's a lot of, um, yeah, a, a lot of folks that are, are looking at Washington, see a lot of the deadlock and the paralysis. Um, and, you know, being here now, I can say it's, it's, uh, there's certainly, there's certainly elements of that. And I think that that's, that's, uh, you know, can't really deny that, but there are many things that go on on the, uh, making policy at the policymaking level, especially at the staff level um, that are pretty exciting. And so what I do day to day now on the Senate Intelligence Committee, um, our primary remit is oversight of the intelligence community. So, um, you know, the, the, the committee was established um, back in the 1970s, um, really um, when there was a, 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 a I guess, a, a realization that the intelligence community really required congressional oversight. And that meant that the American people needed to be involved in what was happening um, uh, in the intelligence community, uh, and so that that's what got this that got the committee started, um, and now uh, it has continued to do its work. And so we look at authorizing budgets, we look at authorizing programs, um, we uh, have regular meetings with uh, people from the intelligence community to ensure that um, they are um, doing things within the confines of the law, but also doing things um, that have been authorized by the committee in terms of budgets um, and programs. So um, so that that work is pretty interesting. We have two hearings a week where we typically have uh, senior members of the intelligence community briefing um, the senators on the committee. And every year we, we produce a piece of legislation that authorizes the budget and programs of the up to 18 intelligence agencies now. I had to, I think uh, how many we're up to now. So 18 intelligence agencies that that, uh, that that do the work on behalf of the American people. So the best way I, could, I guess I can describe that is, you know, we, we're the eyes and ears of the American people. Um, that's that's our job. And so when people talk about, well, who's who's overseeing the CIA or the FBI or or all these agencies, are they just doing things? Um, the answer is there there is a committee, uh, both in the House and, and, and the Senate. 
um, with the um, uh, who, whose job it is to be the American people's oversight. And so that's that's what I currently do. Um, Everything he said, it's true. I, I can vouch for, for this guy. And uh, we work together on defense and military issues and veterans affairs issues, which is not a, an issue area where you would find or you would expect to see a woman of color working on. And um, I found a lot of um, refuge on bipartisanship uh, during our, our work. And how that comes into play with lobbying um, and consulting, it's interchangeable. Um, and basically, uh, we offer access to different organizations, nonprofits, and companies to come and talk to people like Nick, talk to people that are in the committee world, talk to people, to staffers who are working for a certain member of Congress, who keep their doors open to not only their constituents, um, but it's also, um, you know, the, the part of democracy where you also keep your doors open to nonprofits and other small and medium and big companies equally. Um, so different uh, clients of ours have different uh, policy priorities, uh, depending on what industry they're in. Many of them are um, in the, let's say, healthcare world. Some of them are in the agriculture world. Some of them are, again, nonprofits who are um, in the Latino community, in the Black community, in you know, Asian community, and so on and so forth. So they come to us to tell us, um, I have this policy priority that is affecting our business or is affecting our community or is affecting the mission statement of of what we support. And we would like to talk to um, Congressman so-and-so or Senator so-and-so or the committee, and we would appreciate your help. So it happens that I, for example, have worked for you know different members for many years. So then that gives me the ability of saying, actually, I know who you should talk to. I know who cares about these issues. I know who serves on certain committees or certain caucuses. Um, I know who can lend near to you and not just listen to you because of the money they donate, uh, but also they can listen to you genuinely because this is an issue that is going to affect their constituents and because it's an issue that they have been elected and assigned to legislate on given their committee assignments. So um, that's when I come into place and I, you know, can take them to the Hill or to the Senate, well, to the House, the Senate. Um, the other part of lobbying and when it comes, policy comes into, into the equation is on the agency and the administration side. Um, a lot of companies, again, have different issues that intersect with different the different work that the agencies are doing. So, for example, Department of Agriculture or Homeland Security or Department of Defense. Um, I sit on the board of the organization Burnpus 360, and I serve as a pro bono lobbyist for them, for example, sometimes. And they come to me and I'm like, so you should talk to someone in the Department of Defense or someone in the Department of Veterans Affairs. And 
by virtue of my work and the many years that I served in Congress is that I know and have a portfolio of different contacts and the working knowledge of who these people should talk to and ask questions to, and it's just easier for them, right? So um, let's say that the... Um, let's say that the Treasury Department or let's say that the FTC or the FCC, which is the Federal Communications Commission or the Federal Trade um, Commission is going to issue a rule that is going to affect, for example, veterans or soldiers or, uh, I don't know, small companies or anything of that, small businesses, right? And just an example, then they would come to people like me, consultants, and say, what is the best point of contact to make sure that they know they're affecting my small business, that they're affecting my nonprofit, that they're affecting the constituency or the clients or the audience that I'm serving. And um, I do want to say that while lobbying has a very negative connotation in terms of like advocating for the interests of these big corporations and whatnot, there's also the side of lobbying that it's a smaller to medium companies that actually serve a lot of different people of color, different women, different um, in low income areas, and they also need representation. So they come to people, again, like me, like us, to seek that guidance into how to amplify their voices and their interests in Congress. Up on that, what, what Ibelis just said is absolutely right. And I've never been a lobbyist, so I'm, I'm approaching this from the non-lobbyist lens, but I can I can attest to the fact that it, a good lobbyist uh, makes a, a Hill staffer's job much easier uh, for all the reasons Ibelis just laid out, right? And there's a lot of disadvantaged groups that just don't have a voice uh, in, in the same way that maybe um, others do. And so that, and that could be, you know, communities that Ibelis just referenced it could also be um, small companies. It could be it could be a group of folks looking to um, you know pass legislation to to get their water cleaned or their or or you know a, a road paved or whatever the case may be. Right? It, it's it could really be anything. A great example, I think, um, of maybe something that impacts every American now is um, is the Chips for America Act that, as you all know, was signed into law um, by by President Biden. And the genesis of that was in 2020. When we, we we drafted that, and I actually happy to say I got to work on that bill myself with a, a number of colleagues of mine um, across the aisle. So we had uh, folks in Senator Warner's office, um, folks with Senator Schumer's office, Senator Cotton's office, and then Senator Cornyn's office where I was working. And you put those names together, and you may not think that those four names necessarily would write a piece of legislation together. But um, what's great about working on Capitol Hill is that those four senators realized um, that semiconductors are so important to the American economy and to technology and innovation that uh, we very quickly found common ground and and uh, and started drafting that bill. Um, we actually got the policy framework passed into law in 2020, um, and then it took us about two years to get the uh, to get the appropriations done. But on that, I would say one of the reasons it took that long is because we sought the input from the right stakeholders, it included a lot of lobbyists from a lot of different organizations, and that was. You know, those those are corporations, but it was also um, a number of of advocacy groups um, ensuring that we got the legislation right, so that when it finally passed, um, now uh, it's it's in a in, in a place where you're already seeing the investments come in and new semiconductor plants being built, and that couldn't have been accomplished without a team effort of uh, members with foresight, staffers with uh, cunning ingenuity, uh, lobbyists who were able to fill in the gaps. Um, and really, a uh, like I said, a large um, effort over two years to, to get a piece of legislation just right. Um, so, you know, when you look at the policy making machine in Washington, it really is 
um, you know, the legislative branch, but all the things that fuel that. Um, and that's going to end up being, you know, all, all the advocacy groups, the lobbyists, the staffers, but also the executive branch. I mean, there's so many conversations we had with our counterparts um, at DOD, at Commerce, uh, in the intelligence community, um, and everybody had input. Uh, and and for the most part, that input was 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 included, um, and and we got to an overwhelming bipartisan consensus. And I think like something I noticed from what both of you guys were saying was like the centrality of bipartisanship to your guys's work. And like, for me as a young person that's grown up in a like pretty, you know, increasingly like politically polarized climate. And if you look on the news, right, if you look on the news in like the last five years, um, whenever you read an article about politics, it's very much like a tit for tat or two sides battling against each other when the point of a political system is to strive for the greatest good for people, for constituencies, right? So um, I'd love to know a bit about, especially just because I think like, um, kind of like you were saying, Ivelisse, how a lot of times it can seem like politics is a, I'm I, I think the right word would be, it's like kind of like a winner takes all and we might kind of lack or we might, might not be we might not be seeing the shades of gray in between, or the like opportunities for compromise. And I think there's so much we can glean from both sides and from so many people's perspectives. I just want to know a bit about why you guys chose to focus your work, um, you know, on a bipartisan track, this bipartisan nature of policy creation, rather than policy creation that kind of just like harbors within parties. And what have you seen to be the value of bipartisanship when it comes to this process? I come from a different country and I immigrated to the United States when I was 20. And I had a lot of catching up to do to learn about the American political system, American culture, American history. So I took a lot of the classes that students take about American history and the founding fathers and the constitution at the age of 12. I took it when I was 21, 22, 23, and I majored eventually in political science. And the first thing I learned is that this country thrives on consensus, on compromise from both sides of the aisle. We have a bipartisan system, political system, um, you know, not discounting other type of parties, but the powers, the, the parties that have the majority of voters are Republican and Democrat, right? Since the very beginning, I learned that even to write the constitution, it was a group of people that were in a room together and they did not leave the room until they found consensus and wrote the constitution and decided on a form of government. So if you have 345 members of Congress, and 100 senators, we have to somehow get in that room and work together because our system of government is assigned to progress and have change only if those 535 members agree on something and the government and the you know president and the cabinet work together with the American people. It's just how it works. So having that in the back of my mind, I always knew that was the secret sauce to having making change. And if I wanted 
to change something in this country. There was a way. It's not impossible. Um, and it's said so beautifully. Um, yeah, no, great points. Nothing happens without bipartisanship, right? Uh, in, in DC. And, and really, um, you know, it's part of the reason that to move most major legislation through the Senate, you need 60 votes. I mean, that's one thing that kind of, um, you know, kind of reinforces that is that e even if you have a majority, um, and that doesn't matter, you know, who's in who's in power, what party uh, is in the White House, or maybe you've got uh, full control of both chambers of Congress, you still need to work across the aisle. And so what you're seeing is that while there is a lot of deadlock on, on a number of issues, and Ely's pointed out, you know, there's a lot of things that um, Republicans and Democrats aren't going to agree on. There are a number of things that that we do agree on. And, and it's really about finding, it's almost like a Venn diagram, right? Like if you lay those circles over each other, you're going to find something you can work on. Um, and rather than uh, just, you know, throw bombs and, and, and talk about how terrible the other side is, it makes a whole lot more sense to get together and figure out what you can agree on. Uh, and then maybe at some point there's opportunities to widen, you know, that 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 overlap. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that that's, you know, again, if, if we're looking at bills that pass and things that are attached to those bills, um, it, it, it does require bipartisan uh, consensus to move uh, to move those things through. And I wanted to know a little bit more about, in addition to the value of bipartisanship, how do you kind of get there? Because I think it's like, I think it's kind of simple to say, even though it's probably a really difficult process, kind of simple to say, let's talk, let's figure out what we have in common and what we want to do together. But I'm sure the road to get there is a lot harder, um, especially when maybe like values don't align or beliefs are like really incompatible in some cases. How do you guys foster that like healthy environment and get to a place where you can productively work on policy together? I think when I look at it from my perspective, I think I take into account um, one the committee in which on which I work, but also some of my my, my previous experience um, in the army, having been overseas to a, a number of different places. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Europe, uh, the Middle East, South Asia, Afghanistan, um, Iraq, Jordan. I mean, you know, looked at North Africa for for quite a while um, while on active duty, and then now. Uh, being on the Senate Intelligence Committee, I, I spend a lot of time um, looking at real threats to American national security, right? And, and so when I look at it through that lens, um, you know, I've always approached it from the perspective of, you know, I, I'll hear people say um, in policy circles sometimes about the other side and the enemy and this and that. And, and I always remind people, the end, we don't, there's, the Republicans and Democrats are not enemies. We, we, we're, we're on, ultimately, we're we're on the same team. We're trying to do the. We're, we're trying to do the right. We're both trying to do the right thing. We just have different ways of looking at it and different perspectives. And that's where communication is so important. And that's why we need to reach out to folks to get things done. Um, so for me, when I frame it and how do we do bipartisan things, that to me it's because we're all Americans. And you know, Elisa's story is so inspiring to me. I I love when she tells it because she's absolutely right. She came to this country. Um, it's her home. Um, and everybody that lives here either came from somewhere else or has roots somewhere else, even if you were born here. And But the, the one thing that I've noticed in every place I've been um, is that, you know, it's anybody can be an American and that's true. And so when I think of it in that philosophical context um, of, man, people want to come here and this is, this is such an amazing country. We, we ought to be able to um, do things in a way that respects everybody's viewpoints, everybody's backgrounds, everybody's opinions. I may not agree with everything Eva Lee uh, uh, believes, and um, she probably doesn't agree with everything I believe. And 
you know, I, I thought it was funny earlier when she said I had to talk to Republicans, you know, turned out it wasn't so bad when her and I started chatting about things. But, um, you know, ultimately, we, we did find that, uh, you know, again, that the, the way to frame it is um, rather than negotiate against one another, let's let's approach this as a, as a team effort, especially in the areas that we worked in. Um, now, I've got colleagues that work on immigration um, on pro-life issues, on a number of different areas where you're not going to have the same type of um, overlapping consensus, right? But in the realm of intelligence, national security, defense, and veterans, um, there there is a lot of there's a lot of bipartisan overlap because uh, we all um, you know ultimately want to do the right thing um, for this country. Nick, I actually wanted to ask you about um, your experience in Afghanistan and across borders um, and how that influences the work that you do. Um, in my AP literature class, we just finished reading A Thousand Splendid Sons, um, which it takes place in Afghanistan. And before reading that, I knew absolutely nothing about Afghanistan and the war there and everything that has gone on and all the turmoil that uh, the country has experienced. And I feel like that novel just completely shifted my mindset. And it was an extremely traumatic novel um, to read. It was absolutely disturbing. Um, and the fact that it's based on true events that actually happen and continue to happen is extremely disturbing to me. Um, so I am really interested in hearing about your experience, Nick. And and definitely how that impacts the work that you yeah. do, because in, in terms of how it's shaped my um, approach to things, I mean, I think, you know, Af Afghanistan definitely, I mean, obviously, over four deployments between 2008 and 2012, and I was pretty young at the time, right? So in my 20s, and that's, that's what really kind of formed a lot of my, I guess, perspectives and outlooks. And I think it really solidified a couple of things. One, um, you know, if, if you want to get things done, um, if you don't like the way things are going, for example, or if you're seeing things like injustice in the world or, or at home, um, you know, to go back to something Evil has said, the best place to go do that is, is, is by working in policy. Um, and so over the course of, of my career in the military um, and, and over you know, the course of several deployments, I think for me, it became clear that um, for me, I wanted to serve at that level to help enact some policies um, you know, at, at the federal level, that would be one beneficial to U.S. national security and protect U.S. national interests, but also um, looking at, uh, you know, how can we how can we do things that can, um, you know, help bring peace to places like that, right? Uh, and and I think you know, there's a number of solutions, right? Uh, there there's there's and and you, you can go through them all, and obviously Afghanistan is an example of, you know, things that um, they ended the way they did, but. Um, you know, I would I would say in terms of if, if you if you're looking at you know how how that's shaped my perspective, um, you know I, I think someone said we need to get more veterans in Congress. I mean I think that that's probably true. I think that's true for a number of folks. Though I don't think it's just veterans. I mean I think a lot of we have to make sure we're we're getting a broad sampling of the American people to make sure everyone's represented. But certainly after 20 years of uh, of conflict, having a, a veteran voice there to um, view um, view things through that lens. And um, you know, enact policies and advise on policies that that will have an impact on both the American people, but also globally. Um, when you know, when uh, when, it, when it comes to um, the, the use of military force or, or or overseas deployments. Now, as we're looking at 
some of those strategic competitors like China and Russia, um, countries that uh, currently have systems of government that certainly don't share the values of our of our government. Um, and that's obviously not to speak of the people, um, but but the governments there are are really the antithesis of 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 what um, you know Elise described and what 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 we're used to and what we're used to seeing. So. Um, having served overseas and, and seeing kind of what we're up against now, um, I really view it through that lens of we really got to get this right. Uh, we got to get it right domestically. We got to get it right um, with respect to our foreign and defense policy. Um, and that includes tech innovation. It includes opportunities. It's, it's, it includes getting the best people um, to the best uh, jobs, uh, both in the private sector and across government to make America as strong as we can be. Yes, but I'd love um, to get like some of your guys's general thoughts on the party system, um, right? Like where does it, at least from your perspective, what are its pros, what are its cons and how do we think we can build upon it um, or improve it in the future? Because like to me as a young person right now, a lot of times it feels like that's the system holding us back from a lot of things. Um, we're very bipartisan when it comes to lobbying. And again, it's it's a matter of what the client needs um, and who can advocate and who will lend a, an amicable, amenable ear to the client's priorities. So um, I personally will not take on any clients that violate my code of ethics or morals. Um, for example, you are never going to find me lobbying for the NRA, NRA, right? Just like other Republican lobbyists are never, you're going to never going to, you're never going to find them lobbying for Planned Parenthood. So it depends on how you establish your boundaries and who to um, lobby for, right? Um, there's others that don't lobby for oil companies, or they just don't um, lobby for banks, or each one of us establishes different boundaries. Um, and the reason is not only personal, but also um, I worked for a doctor for six years. So I'm not gonna bring him a client that wants to do something crazy that goes against the values of that member of Congress when I know very well that that member of Congress advocates for something or completely the opposite, right? So it depends on how you want to see but I, you know, parties in that regard. My job and how I do it, and I can only speak for myself at this point, given that general overview, how I personally do it is I focus on bipartisanship with all of my clients. And I try to always bring groups of people that are my bread and butter. I try to make sure that they don't leave women behind. So whatever, when I'm you know, working for either a nonprofit or an investment company or a healthcare client, I make sure that they see there's a, a population of women that they can cater to. Um, the other group that I care about a lot is people of color, making sure that they what are you going, what are you doing for the people of color? How are you, how is this going to benefit my community, the black community, the Asian community? And the other um, 
group that I really advocate for is the veterans. I worked on veterans issues for so long and the veteran um, demographic, it encompasses Latino, black veterans, low income veterans. It's not only white people, right? But it's people that sacrifice, like they put their lives in the line of fire and somehow they return home and they find themselves many times homeless or without proper healthcare. Um, so when I'm working with healthcare corporations, for example, um, I try to make sure to connect them with the, not only the Department of Defense, but also the Department of Veterans Affairs and see how they can work together. Maybe they can procure some of their products or services with some veteran clinics through the veteran healthcare system. And make, like that's a plus, right? That is something that I can make happen that no one else can make happen. Um, why? Because I have the connections to the Veterans Administration and I have a client, so I'm the bridge. So that is my main focus, creating bridges wherever I can, because there is a reason why I, as a person of color, as a person with the background that I have, I'm here in a place where I can do that with the resources to do that, right? That is how I um, balance the interest of, you know, as you want to put it, corporations versus the people that I always carry in the back of my mind. I mean, I always tell people, my heart is Democrat, but my brain is Republican. I try to be strategic um, as possible, but my heart ultimately belongs to the people. I think when we're, when, when I look at the, the party system, um, I, I, you know, I look at something that's worked pretty well for a pretty long time. And I, and I think that there are some things now that, um, you know, where, where you are seeing a lot more polarization, um, but to even lose this point, there's always ways to find that consensus. I think, you know, the alternative to, to, to what we have now, if you look at the way where the, the party system is structured, and there's a lot of, a lot of machinery behind that, right. That, that gets people to vote. It gets people to, to turn out. It gets, uh, it, it establishes committee structures in Congress. Um, and you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, like I said, I guess it really is, like it's infrastructure, right. That party infrastructure that drives forward those things. I think what you've, what you'll find in, in the course of American history is that, you know, each party that at some point served as more of a big tent party. It's sometimes it's been the Republicans in some cases, it's been the Democrats, uh, in some cases, um, you know, uh, several members who used to be Southern Democrats flipped to the Republican party and. And in some cases, it was the other way around, where where you had some uh, uh, Republicans that, that 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 either became independents or became Democrats as as some of those things shifted. But ultimately, what I think the the two party system has done is it is it has forced um, debate in a way that ultimately does find consensus. Because you know, I think if I look at um, uh, the, the possibility of having five or six parties uh, or something like that, um, one you'd have to really kind of re create the, the the machinery behind that and two you'd have to figure out you know coalition building would take on a whole other dimension right so something like maybe you see in, in the parliamentary systems of Europe um, or other places where it works uh, for, for them and they've got a, they've got a parliamentary system that that certainly um, gets things done but uh, I, I think ultimately uh, when, when I look at our system I don't know that I would change it um, I, but I do think that I would um, get back to looking at ways to reach out to people that are different from you, even if, if uh, you know, um, and I mean that, you know, in, in thought and appearance and in, in, in origin, whatever the case may be, 
rather than being stovepiped into, well, uh, you know, I'm a Republican, so maybe I should only talk to a certain demographic. Well, I'm a I'm a Democrat, so I'm I'm not going to reach out to that group of folks because they're they're not going to um, think or vote the same way as I am. I, I think approaching it from that perspective already cuts you off from half of the electorate. Um, and I think as long as we approach it for look, I, my message could actually reach anybody, right? I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with the Republican Party's platform. There's nothing inherently wrong with with the Democrats' platform, right? It's all about um, speaking to people's values and reaching out to everybody and not assuming that just because somebody looks a certain way or talks a certain way or comes from a certain part of the country um, or, or, you know, drives a certain type of car or truck that that person automatically falls on one side of the aisle or the other. And I think the more we find ways to bridge our our, our differences, whether those be, um, you know, culturally or, 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 or opinions, and, and even if you don't agree, just understand and respect the other person and listen. I mean, I think that in, in many cases, you'll find that uh, you, you probably agree on a whole lot more than you disagree on, um, you know, some of those bigger issues notwithstanding. Um, and obviously, the person that put me in touch with you all, Michael Whidden, I love what he's doing with the American Tributaries uh, Project, because, you know, he's really taken it upon himself um, to, to do just that, right? When he takes a group of folks from Brooklyn and goes to South Carolina, that's amazing. I mean, that's that's what we need to do is to, um, you know, foster more exchanges in this country. Um, and it's great to go abroad and we should do that. And, and I think that there's opportunities to go abroad and learn about other cultures and how how that, you know, maybe compares to our own because we can always learn from everybody. But I think we ought to be doing that here in this country too. And if, if, if you've never been to, you know, an Iowa cornfield, um, you know, uh, you, you should go do that. Uh, for what it's worth, I was up in uh, New York City about two weeks ago. So I've been, uh, I've been to a number of, uh, of, of, of cities, but also a number of, of rural areas in the country. And it's fascinating who you meet. And uh, I can tell you that I've never had a, an interaction that hasn't been cordial, friendly, and warm. Because at the end of the day, most people are just trying to live their lives and do the right thing, um, no matter if they've got a D or an R behind their name. Um, and, uh, you know, those are the things. And again, I, I could talk about this all day. So someone's going to have to cut me off. But those are the things that give me hope. And those are the things when I look around this country, um, you, you meet some pretty amazing people. Um, to tie back to your question about how the two-party system works, I think it can work uh, in, in establishing more of those, those, you know, those bridges that Evely's mentioned, right? Build more bridges um and uh and, and let's let's get people talking and then you know our, our system that has worked for you know well over 200 years can, can continue to work uh, quite well um today i was participating in an, an event um through the business program that i'm a part of in school um called virtual enterprise um and that's a program that is available nationwide um, to schools that allow students to run their own virtual businesses. And today we had a big trade show um, at the Javits Center. Uh, there were over 200 companies from across the world uh, participating, all high school seniors um, and juniors. And uh, I was walking around on uh, all the other companies' booths and I come across um, an Indonesian um, booth. And I was really, really interested because I'd never met someone who was Indonesian or um, lived in Indonesia. And so my friend and I were like, oh, how, how do you like New York City? Is this your first time here? Um, and the student that we were talking to, the first thing he says was, these buildings are so tall. And it's not even something that I think twice about being born and raised here in New York City. Um, but just speaking to this other high school senior uh, from halfway across the world and 
just discussing the differences and similarities of our lives are was just so fascinating and interesting and it definitely like inspired me to want to reach out to people more on an international basis just being around um all these different people today was definitely a treat um so that's what um what you were saying Nick have reminded me of um, in regards to the party system I think that if you asked me prior to reading this book that question Kanisha that you had originally posed I would probably be like uh the two-party system is not working it's not a completely representative of the average American and I myself don't feel represented in the two-party system and I don't think it does a good blah blah I would go on about that um, and reading A Thousand Splendid Sons really it put me in a different perspective that like, oh my gosh, we have the ability to be represented in government and have individual rights. Like that's completely insane and revolutionary, even though we take it for granted so much in this country. But honestly, I feel like this two-party system actually definitely promotes democracy. And just to and quickly on that, Madeline, I'm glad you, you, you framed it that way. To go back to a question you asked earlier, too, you know, that's one of the things when when I was deployed to Afghanistan, I, and I remember driving around uh, in Kabul and up to Bagram and um, being out in the eastern part of the country, um, especially in, you know when you, when you drive through some of the more rural areas, um, it, th those things really hit home, right? It's recognizing, wow, um, we we have a pretty amazing system um, that you know does provide. Um, a heck of a lot more opportunity than what um, what folks, uh, unfortunately, in Afghanistan um, today, certainly with the return of the Taliban, um, you know, have and and not not to even compare those two because that's obviously crazy. But just to just to you know frame that in a way that 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 kind of um, totally reinforces what you're saying in terms of the the, the way that we we do have an opportunity to, to change things. And again, it's not there are always going to be things that. Um, we're going to disagree about and things that we could probably, you know, improve upon. But that's the great thing about this country, um, you know, and, and you mentioned uh, in Afghanistan, uh, you know, women need um, a male chaperone to, to walk down the street. You know, in this country, you know, women couldn't vote till what, 1919. Um, and someone may have to check the date on that. But but obviously, like now, like everybody would say, that's crazy. Of course, you know, women should vote. Um, and, and do everything that a man can do, right? And that's that's the difference between the United States and, and really anywhere else is that here we can we can turn that into a reality and, and make sure that that representation goes to everyone and every American. Um, is there work to do? Of course, but but we're we're here to do it, and that's where I think it goes back to the policymakers and the staff picking up that those 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 burdens and, and on behalf of the American people and making those changes happen uh, in, in in a way that that benefits everybody uh and if you look at you know to your point in afghanistan that possibility that door of, of a possibility has been shut to those people and uh and that's pretty tragic i definitely agree with you on that nick um i always like telling people americans are rebels they just want change all the time and they want to rebel and do things better and be better i mean who throws tea in the ocean for you know a sovereign government i love it um, but I'm always happy to be here and talk about partisanship any day and Nick knows this, which is why um, I love doing these type of events with such a, you know, a great person like him. Um, and you don't get to meet people that understand the other side of the aisle every day. So I'm happy to be you're here. Sure, the feeling is mutual. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, no, it's, it's, it's great. I, I, I appreciate a chance to speak with you all. And 
you know, I think it, I'm, I'm inspired by young people um, like you all doing this and wanting to be involved. And it's incredibly important that you remain involved um, because at some point I had the realization that I'm not that young anymore. Um, and that, you know, it's really um, on us to make sure we, we, we bring the next generation along. I mean, again, it's, it's, we, 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 we're all in this together and we're, we're all going the same direction. So uh, we need to make sure that uh, people stay involved, get involved um, and uh, recognize the importance of civic action. And that could be anything from uh, at the local level, all the way up to the federal, um, just, just and make sure your voice is heard and, and don't despair at some of the things you're seeing on the news. It's, it's, it's not as bad as it looks. There are a lot of good things happening and uh, we, we do need you all to be involved to, to make it, make it, make this country work for everyone. So appreciate it.